The TNT Shop has great gift ideas for your furry family member. And we don't mean your Aunt Dolores. You stink! The TNT Shop has it all at tntradio.live. You're listening to Germ Warfare with Jeremy Nell on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Germ Warfare at tntradio.live. That's my email address. Thank you to everybody who emails me. Thank you to those who uh, tell me where in the world they are mailing me from. That's one of my favorite parts of the email. In fact, it's one of the first things I do when I get an email uh, at, uh, at at my, um, my TNT address. I always look to see where... Uh, people are mailing from and then only after that do I worry about the substance of the email jump into the live chat say hi uh, I'm very happy to announce that unlike yesterday my guest today has pitched up <laughs> and he's one of my favorite guests guests of all time it's uh, Prof Tim Noakes Alex are we ready my name is Jim this is Jim Warfare the battle of ideas Stay in the loop all day. And the only radio station that helps me through a long day. Today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Tim Noakes, thank you for joining me in the trenches once again. Always a pleasure. I just know that whatever happens, it's going to be enjoyable. <laughs> it is. Um, and we'll and not stir up enjoyable. some trouble. We will. Uh, it's funny. I like your use of enjoyable because uh, <laughs> the diet that we often talk about is extremely enjoyable. <laughs> That's why we're so happy. <laughs> we know we're <laughs> now, only a few hours away from the next steak or something of that order. Yeah, it's funny you say that a few hours. Uh, these days I find many hours. Um, I, I stay satiated for, for a long time. Yeah, that's a good point. And of course, that's the whole key, that if you're not satiated by your diet, you will never be truly as healthy as you could be. You know, it took me a long time to understand that. I didn't understand mm -hmm. that the such thing as sugar addiction and carb addiction and ultra processed food addictions, but they are real. And then it took me more time for our scientists to show that if you don't reverse those, you won't reverse diabetes. It's, it's as simple as that. Diabetes is much more about the sugar addiction and the food addiction than it is about your blood mm. glucose. That the glucose is the consequence of, of getting the, the addictions under control. Well, there's the segue. Today is World Diabetes Day. Not that it means anything, but if we're being honest with ourselves, Tim, it should be every day. Well, I, I see that the US spends $1.2 billion every day on diabetes management, a disease that is completely reversible and preventable. So just mm -hmm. think about that for a moment. $1.2 billion a day. So as mm -hmm. we're talking, thousands of millions of well hundreds of millions of dollars are just disappearing like that well let's quickly just go back to basics tim what is diabetes and what causes it okay classically there are two forms type one and type two we used to call them as juvenile onset and adult onset we'll talk about the more common one which is much more common is the adult onset which comes on later in life, but now has been defined in a three-year-old. It's been identified in a three-year-old. So it's the use of the term adult onset is probably wrong. And it's very simply, and, and then, you know, again, it takes you generate or took me a long time to realize it. 
but it's very simple and it's so obvious and if you said this to a doctor they'd say but but so what diabetes is a failure of the regulation of blood glucose control that's what diabetes is now now why is that so important because the human body is designed to do everything it possibly can in its power to regulate the blood glucose concentration now we could argue why that is but that is the reality and we don't acknowledge it humans if you give them carbohydrate the first thing they attempt to do is make sure the blood glucose doesn't rise very far and secondly get rid of the excess glucose as quickly as possible those are facts and what is a diabetic a diabetic is a person who doesn't do that they don't regulate the blood glucose properly it stays elevated for too long they can't get rid of the glucose out of the bloodstream and ultimately glucose is very toxic now it's really interesting but you know again these things you only see when you go back 20 years we 20 years ago probably longer we did some experiments we infused glucose into the bloodstream via a peripheral vein like one of these veins here at high rates because we wanted to see how much glucose could the muscles use if we forced the blood glucose to be elevated to twice its normal value and we found that then the muscle would burn two to three times as much glucose as if we fed it by mouth and that was great because then we knew that there was some limitation somewhere but that's not relevant but what was interesting was two days later the guys came up and they showed us these inflamed veins their veins were all eroded or they'd become clotted because the glucose infused for an hour at a high concentration the sort of concentration you see in diabetics by the way had damaged the artery the, the veins into which it was in, in, infused and that's the reality that high glucose has to be brought down as quickly as possible because it damages the linings of the arteries conversely if your blood glucose drops too low and that has happened when you use too much insulin for example your blood glucose drops and then you're at risk of damaging your brain so that so repeat type 2 diabetes is a failure of blood glucose regulation and it occurs very simply not because you ate too much meat it's because you tested this control system too once too often should i say a million times too or thousands of times too often because every time you take a carbohydrate load you test that system and I just laughed, you know, Harvard recently said, oh, diabetes is caused by meat. So then we must start doing a meat tolerance test to see who's going to get diabetes or who's got diabetes. We don't. You know what? We give a glucose tolerance test. We give 65 or 75 grams of glucose and we monitor the glucose response. Now, why would we do that if the problem wasn't related to carbohydrate and glucose? Because if you give meat, you don't see that response because there's essentially or little carbohydrate in meat. So that's part, that's that's the first type. The second type is the less common one, and it's one I'm not as expert in in managing. Yes, but not in knowing the full physiology and biology. And that's where your pancreas, which normally secretes insulin, becomes destroyed at a young age, usually by an autoimmune disease. And so you don't have enough cells to secrete insulin. And so you've got a true insulin deficiency. Now, let me just make one other point that we only knew the distinction between type 1 and 2 type, D, type 2 diabetes in the 1970s, because that's the first time 
you could measure insulin in the bloodstream. So already in the 1920s, people understood that diabetes has got something to do with insulin. But they assumed it was all, all the same, all types of diabetes were because there was too little insulin. Along came these two scientists and who could now measure insulin and they got a great shock because they found most of the people had too much insulin in the bloodstream. And they are called, that's the insulin resistant type 2 diabetic. It is only the children who get the, the earlier onset diabetes and that is a rapidly fatal condition. If you don't treat it, the patient will die within, within hours or days. Whereas type 2 diabetes is this long drawn out disease which destroys your arteries and ultimately, you have no arterial function left. And so you've got no kidney function, no brain function, little heart function. And that's that's the, it's a dreadful disease. And one of the reasons I'm involved is because I saw my dad die of type 2 diabetes. And it's not a disease you want to die from. How prevalent is diabetes, Tim? I, it's by far the most common disease. When you diagnose it properly, that's the problem. You see, what happens is we've taught that diabetes is irreversible. So if you're a doctor, you don't want to tell the patient they've got diabetes because you know what the outcome is. They're going to have heart attacks. They're going to have strokes. They're going to lose their legs, amputations, etc. So you don't want to tell the patient that. So you put it off as long as you can on the assumption that somehow, as long as they don't have cl clinically diagnosed diabetes, they somehow are going to live okay. And so we would wait until the glucose was so high in the bloodstream that it poured out into the kidneys. That was how we diagnosed it in the, in the 60s and 70s and 80s. It was largely from a urine test. But then we got more sophisticated and we could check the blood. And so we started checking bloodstream values. And we allowed them to drift from, say, 4.5 as a child up to 6.5. And then we said, oh, when you go 6.5, one. 6.51, you've suddenly got diabetes. But if you're 6.49, you don't have diabetes. I mean, that's absolutely ridiculous because it's a continuum. And so, so that's the problem. If you were to diagnose diabetes when it starts to turn, in other words, when you're on the, on the steps, diabetes in waiting is what I call it. Some people call it uh, pre-diabetes. I don't, I don't, I, it's diabetes in waiting. It's already there. It's just you didn't recognize it. And the moment your blood glucose rises above 6.5 in the morning, you're on the road. Now, that might be 20 years before you get a glucose in your urine. And that 20 years is wasted because that 20 years, your, your kidneys are dying and your arteries are dying and you are dying. So if you took a value of 6.6, or sorry, 5.6 as your cutoff for diabetes, 80% of people living in, say, North America, maybe not 80%, but 60 or 70% would have diabetes. But in, we don't do that. We wait. We say it's only 30% because we use more sophisticated testing. And then we wait till till they, their values are so abnormal that they we can no longer hide the fact that they are frankly diabetic. Has diabetes picked up over the, shall we say, centuries? Hugely, absolutely, massively. And it really all begins with the introduction of two things. The firstly is the foods of commercial industry, where those foods are processed foods and they travel around the world. So as long as people were eating the food from their environment, they were fine. We didn't have much. 
we had essentially no diabetes. But then what comes along are the two things, are these these foods of, of commerce, and they arrive and the, with sugar. And that's when it kicks off. A lot of people argue that it's vegetable oils as well are a main driver, but but the key is the disease starts after the 19, really takes off after the 1970s, early 1980s. And that's when we change the dietary guidelines from eat fat to eat carbs. And that's that's when it became official policy that you must not have a heart attack, so you must eat grains. The trouble is it's grains that cause heart attacks, not the meat. And so we changed what was safe to what was unsafe. And that's when it really took took off. And now when I was at school in the 1960s, everyone was lean uh, with across the board. We had one kid in our class who was fat and we thought he had di- we had cancer because we didn't know what obesity was. Literally, we didn't know what diabetes obesity was in schoolboys and schoolgirls. But today you go to the schools and you'll see it's it's ingrained and it starts with the mother. She's pre-diabetic and she eats a high carbohydrate diet during her pregnancy and she immediately weans the child onto high carbohydrate foods. That that's it. That child is finished. That child will get diabetes given time. Tim, what is the relationship uh, between a pregnant mother and her unborn child? I mean, can she if she's diabetic, can she pass it on genetically? Yeah, that's a good question. Now, you, you have to have some insult to get type 1 diabetes. And again, I'm not sure which all, I don't want to speak as if I'm an expert. The simple thing we're told is, well, you have an autoimmune disease or you have a viral infection and it knocks out the pancreas, the pancreatic cells. So would the mother give that to you? Perhaps if she had an infection that she might be able to. Uh, but I'm I'm not sure. I think it takes outside the womb you need to get something happen that that causes problems i mean there's all sorts of things can we use the vax word i mean that's there's all we can here on the station (laughs) there's there's concerns about that but but much more important is the so-called epigenetic effects and that's the mother who eats a high carbohydrate diet and has pre-diabetes that programs the child sets that child up for diabetes and I talked about that in my trial at length. We had a long story about that. Mm. And that was uh, 2014, 2015. It was nearly 10 years ago about the epigenetic genetic effects of eating high carbohydrate diets. And typically the dietitians who were in the trial, they weren't interested. They're not interested in epigenetic effects on type 2 diabetes. I'm going to ask you in a moment about epigenetics. I was having a conversation a few days ago actually about that. But before before I ask you, Tim, I'm quickly going to go to a break. I'll be back with you shortly. My name is Jerm, chatting to Tim Noakes. This is TNT Radio. TNT Radio's Hervoy Morich. It's reported out in Canada that last year, 4.1% of all deaths in Canada were due to made medical assistance in dying the country's eugenics program. This is according to the country's health ministry. 13,241 people died under the MADE program. And uh, it says the program was criticized for allegedly driving citizens into assistance 
assisted suicide on the grounds of poverty or lack of health care. Stories included two separate cases of cash-strapped women suffering from chronic health conditions who successfully applied to end their lives. Four Canadian military veterans were allegedly pressured to opt for medically assisted death by a now-suspended Veterans Affairs Canada caseworker. Made program, or in other words, as R.J. Rummel would call it, democide, death by government, pretty much. It's a brave, brave new world. Pervoy Morich on today's News Talk, TNT Radio. While serving in Afghanistan, I was hit by sniper fire. The fighting was so intense, the medevac chopper was barely able to land. In the hospital, I was given a 5% chance to live. It's a good thing math wasn't my best subject. Today, I visit classrooms and share my story. I talk to kids about dealing with life's struggles. I tell them, with a little help and a lot of work, that you can overcome any challenge. DAV helps veterans like Adam get the benefits they've earned. They help more than a million veterans every year in life-changing ways. I know that some struggles are big and some are small, but they're all struggles, and you have to learn to get through them. With support from DAV, more veterans like me can live their best life. And as a new father, I have one more reason to keep on keeping on. My victory is being there for the next generation. Adam Alexander, may your victories inspire many more. Support more victories for veterans. Go to DAV.org. Stop the jab and save lives. The COVID vaccine does not work. Today's News Talk, TNT Radio. Tim, what is epigenetics? Yo, you're asking a non-geneticist <laughs> for a... Sim- simply stated, uh, when the genetic code was discovered in 19, sorry, yeah, 1973, 19, sorry, 1953, 1954, it was thought that this was the future, that everything was coded in your genes. And then it became slowly realized that that wasn't the case. You couldn't explain everything on the basis purely of what genet- DNA material you had. And then it was discovered that there were moderators that influenced the expression of the genes. And that then became known as epigenetics. And those factors were all influenced by largely by the environment. So in a sense, it's as if the DNA is the hardware and the epigenetics is the software. So that's how you can upgrade your system by changing the epigenetics. And that's how, as I understand it, humans work. We we change in response to the environment to make us perhaps slightly more effective or less effective. And, and the big one that I do know a little bit about is the epigenetic effect on the mother of the mother on the baby, the unborn baby, and that the more diabetic and pre-diabetic she is, the more obese that child will that child will become and the more likely to develop type 2 diabetes. And that, that's clear cut. The evidence is absolutely clear from studies of mothers and where they looked at the pregnancy and then they look at the outcome of the child. And there's no question that the the more diabetic, the more obese the mother, the more at risk the, the child is. So what you're saying is that environmental factors uh, play a big role in one's health and that includes diet. Yeah, well, yeah, if you want us to get onto that one, it's absolutely critical. We. You know, diet is is just such an important determinant of our long term health, and it's it's simply not properly emphasised. And that's why I love talking to you because you allow me to tell everyone get your diet right first. That mm. you can't outrun a bad diet, and 
we have so many arguments about this and we just so then they say oh but exercise does it all you see so you can just exercise and all the diseases disappear but there's not one study not one study showing that diabetes can be reversed by exercise alone it, it just doesn't happen but there are numerous studies showing that diabetes is reversible by a diet alone but it has to be the correct diet and so mm -hmm. we produced our textbook which i should show you but i'll have to go and find it we produced our textbook with list 62 chapters of what nutrition can do for your health and the specific diseases it can address there's no textbook that'll tell you that there are 62 different conditions or what chapters about what exercise can do for you with proper intervention trials again the problem with nutrition is that most of the nutritional research is based on studies of populations so-called associational epidemiological research which is a complete disaster it can never prove causation and exercise is unfortunately exactly the same and and i've written about it widely in our books and i, I was wrong because what happens is the healthiest people do the most exercise and then you say well it's exercise is making the most healthy no no the exercise is identifying who's healthy that's what it's doing it does have an effect I'm, i mustn't downplay it but unhealthy people don't exercise and then you then you think well it's because they're not exercising that they're getting sick but it's not that it's they get sick first or, the, or they lazy etc there was a lovely study in the 1950s of bus drivers and bus conductors and they found that the bus conductors were much healthier why because they jumped they ran up and down the stairs and they said hello to everyone and they jumped off the bus and they called people onto the bus they were active 24 hours a day seven days a week whereas the bus driver was lethargic sitting there so then they went and looked and they said well what were their waist and height when they joined up with the London transport company and they found that the healthy ones became the conductors and the fat slobs with high blood pressure etc with high cholesterol which is not a risk factor I shouldn't say that the pre-diabetic ones they become the drivers and that was the classic <laughs> identification of exercise identifying healthy people so that's the Tim, problem with exercise it it hasn't it exercise does have an important role but mm. it you really have to combine it with ex, with nutrition to get the major benefit the correlation between being fat and having diabetes is fairly well established but what about not being fat oh no i mean i was not grossly obese i was overweight yes but i i had classic diabetes i had classic diabetes but it gets much worse because i was tested on a low carbohydrate and a high carbohydrate diets we would we were studying ketosis in 1978 long before ketosis was a big issue and we realized that to make you ketotic you had to eat a low carbohydrate diet and exercise so we did that and we developed the ketosis in ourselves but we also measured our glucose values and our insulin values and mine were off the scale when i ate a high carbohydrate diet now this was i was 29 years old i was running at least 120 kilometers a week and i was racing marathons as as best i could i was in other words i was the fittest i w was ever in terms of performance in the marathon and i my values were atrocious i was profoundly insulin resistant but i was lean my body mass index was 21. not many people have a body mass index of 21 and and have such terrible values 
And one of my great friends is Mark Kukuzela, and I'd, I'd love people to to follow him because he's just such a brilliant runner. And uh, he was a very fast runner, a lot faster than me. Absolutely lean, trained 80 miles a week. Frankly, pre-diabetic, severely pre-diabetic, and and much younger than I was then. And he said, I can't believe it. How could I possibly be pre-diabetic if I'm doing all these things and I'm so physically fit? And he, if I'd had to have a poster boy for a medical doctor who was a picture of health, who couldn't do anything more to make himself healthy, he was the guy. Mark Kukuzela, just look him up and everyone will see what, what I mean. Yet he had severe pre-diabetes. In fact, even you could have diagnosed frank diabetes at that stage. But to be clear, it is reversible. That's right. And you know, it was so interesting because I was I was reading something yesterday, which I haven't read for a long time. But when we published the book, The Real Meal Revolution, which sort of sparked the banting, and, and you know about that because it changed your life as well, mm. which sparked the banting movement in South Africa, We, I then got a lot of people who wrote to me and I analyzed the outcomes of the 127 people wrote to me. And in fact, it was 180, but I cut it down 127 usable bits of information. And I published it in the South African Medical Journal. I said, this is not science. It's an observational study which needs to be done, tested in a randomized controlled trial. The first thing that happened was they wanted to have it scrubbed from the South African Medical Journal. Why would you want to a, a, an article which is mm. describing 127 people who dramatically improved their health? Why would you want to scrub it from the South African Medical Journal? So that was it went through a whole process, and I had to fight, fight, fight to make sure that it wasn't removed. But eventually, it stayed in. And what did it say? There it said these are these are 20. I think there were 20 people had reversed their type two diabetes. And I mean, I couldn't believe it because I'd been taught to believe that type 2 diabetes is irreversible disease. The key was these people had not gone to the doctor. They'd simply read a book. They'd got a diet plan and they followed the diet plan. And those ones who followed the diet plan and didn't have a sugar addiction reversed their type 2 diabetes. And then that was that came out in 2013. And if you read the, the, the some of the statements about diabetes day to day, it said type 2 diabetes is reversible. So what happened to me? I said it was reversible in 2013. I got thrown out of my university and my profession for saying it. Mm. Now, 10 years later, people say, no, but no, but we all know that. We've always known that. <laughs> that's That's how the profession works, unfortunately. So to yeah. emphasize, it's absolutely reversible. But you have to get your carbohydrate intake to a minimum. It depends how far you are on the spectrum. If you start, let's say you were a year ago, you were known not to be diabetic, and this year you found to be diabetic, you will reverse it completely. You will not need medication mm. just by cutting your carbs. I had diabetes for probably, probably five, 10 years without realizing it. So I was sitting on the edge. And then I tipped over. And once I tipped over, taking a low carbohydrate diet, in fact, taking zero carbohydrates still wasn't good enough. I took medication. Fortunately, didn't need insulin, but I still needed. I still need the medication. 
And so I'm, I'm not reversed. I'm in remission. And so that's that's the difference. But if you catch it early enough, you can you should be able to get a hundred percent remission. And so interesting thing though. Extend that a bit further. Yes, if we didn't allow it to happen in the first place, we would never have the problem. And we know how to do that. Mm. Yeah. yeah, preventative. Exactly. And mm. but that's going to mean we have to change our whole food supply, and that's not no one's prepared to do that. Yeah, it's funny we're talking about diabetes, but the collateral net benefit of a low carbohydrate diet goes way beyond diabetes yeah and the, and the reason is which which we're not taught in medical schools is that that the underlying cause of all these conditions high blood pressure cancer increasingly cancer high blood pressure heart disease cancer diabetes it's all this condition insulin resistance which i'm a classic person as i've as i've mentioned if you have insulin resistance and you eat a high carbohydrate diet, you will end up with one of these chronic diseases, Alzheimer's. I didn't mention Alzheimer's disease. You will end up with one of those diseases. It might not be diabetes, but it will be one of the related conditions. All the chronic diseases that we doctors spend or the doctors spend all their time treating without success. And that's why medicine's in real trouble, because the doctors are burning out. They're burning out because they're seeing more and more patients with the same condition, which they can't help. All the doctors who we teach in, in this dietary intervention come back and say, it's revolutionous, our, tra our service to patients, because when we see patient X, in a month's time, I know patient X is going to be better. If they follow my advice, they're going to be better. Whereas I know if I put them on medication, when they come back in a month's time, they won't have changed at all. They'll just be getting mm. worse. And what am I going to do? Give them more medication and more medication and more complication as a consequence of this over-medication. So, so that's why it it doesn't make sense why medicine doesn't embrace this dietary intervention because it will spare all the doctors from all the frustration and the burnout that they're going through. Well, you just, you just answered your own question. It doesn't make sense. Well, it does make sense because they want to make more money. Yeah, that, that's, the tr that's a great tragedy, you know, but if I can just deviate for a moment onto the topic that you like to discuss, you know, the fact that Pfizer's share price is dropping below out of the sky is really encouraging because if Pfizer goes bankrupt, as Johnson & Johnson is about to go bankrupt and Moderna is going to go bankrupt, all of a sudden the medical schools are going to have to ask questions, but hold it, we survived through Pfizer. I mean, I know medical schools in South Africa who I don't know how well they'd be doing if it wasn't for Pfizer. And now they're going to have to ask, but where are we going to get our money? Well, actually, you're just going to have to teach students proper science, proper medicine, where they can treat patients properly and not mm -hmm. waste money on medications which don't work. So there, there is a potential for a great reawakening. And I just hope it happens. And I don't know if the medical schools see it or not, or they're just going to run into to bankruptcy, which would, mm. would be the other option? Or are they going to change and start teaching students what's going to work for those students? You mentioned cancer earlier, and I think it was the World Economic Forum uh, or the CDC, I forget now. One of them, I think about a year ago, put out a, a, a statement, I think it was on social media, saying that over the next 15 years, cancer is going to increase by around 65%. Now, 
Now, do you think there's a correlation between that and poor diet? Absolutely. I mean, you, just to think about it, yesterday another paper came out showing that, that insulin resistance, hyperinsulinemia, is the main driver of pancreatic cancer. So the, the insulin is driving the cancer in the pancreatic cells. And so that's, or everyone's known that insulin is a growth factor and it's a tumor producing factor. So it's just coming out every day that it's more and more likely that this is what's going to happen. If cancer doesn't get you, if dementia doesn't get you, heart disease is going to get you. And they're all the same disease. And that, that's the point when I give, when I lecture to students, when I was allowed to, I have the slide, I said, you know, you're taught these different categories of disease, but they're all the same disease. They're all from, mm. arise from insulin resistance and high carbohydrate diets. So what's the treatment? You have to treat the high carbohydrate diet. And that's the only way you'll ever help patients with these diseases. It is so abundantly clear and as I said, we've now produced a textbook, which I'm going to go and collect for a second. <laughs> so, no problem. So here's the textbook. And this is Ketogenic, the Science of Therapeutic Carbohydrate Restriction in Human Health. And it's, it's, it's packed with references. This is the most studied diet in history. And I was chucked out of my university for saying that this is the diet you should be following. So what we did was we said, little old South Africa, little old Cape Town, these little old people in Cape Town are going to organize something to stick <laughs> into your throats. And that's what we produced. So no one can ever come and say that there's no evidence for this disease, for this. This is a medical textbook. It describes all medical conditions and how they're influenced by nutrition. No mm. one has ever written a book. These are the medical conditions that are influenced by exercise in such detail. I mean, this is just an unbelievable textbook. And again, it's not me who wrote it. It was 62 of the world leading authorities. Including Thomas so, Seafried. Yes, Thomas wrote the chapter. I'll, I'll, as you ask me the next question, I'll, I'll find it. Cancer. Well, tell you what I'll do. Yes, yes, yes. I've actually interviewed him, and uh, he he has spoken extensively about the link between uh, ketogenic diets uh, and, uh, and controlling cancer. In fact, reducing cancer and in fact removing cancer altogether. Yeah, and this is one of the textbooks where you'll find all that that information. Yeah, he's been he's been a stalwart because you know if. Where I was scared to say not when I first started, I thought, okay, heart disease, it's a bit of a push with diabetes and exercise and nutrition, but cancer, that's off limits. I mean, that's, that's quackery. And now mm -hmm. I realize that we, okay, now we've established diabetes and now it is we're isolating heart disease and now cancer and brain diseases. It's, it's a slow process, but the danger of cancer is always you're going to be charged for being a quack. I was accused of being a quack for talking about heart disease, but cancer is so far out on left field that, that you have to be very brave to do what he did. And he's, the data are there and mm -hmm. that will eventually become accepted. And unfortunately, many people around the world are benefiting 
from fasting and eating low carbohydrate diets uh, yeah. either when they have cancer or in therapy so that's been established john prof tim noakes i'll be back with you shortly my name is germ this is tnt radio de-weaponizing weather with reality and perspective well our girl greta is at it again except she might have just hung herself with her own rope now what rope is that well she wants to get into political activity she's trying to parallel what's going on with israel and palestine with climate change in fact this is exactly how they work they try to link things together and yet there's some people in the climate community that don't like this at all as a matter of fact they resent her doing that because after all whether they're right or wrong climate is important to them but let let me tell you what the common denominator of what people like Greta Thunberg are doing is. They don't know all the facts. She certainly does not know the history, which extends back to Abraham, by the way, of how this whole problem got going over there. She has no idea. And she certainly does not have any idea of the seven, eight, nine, in fact, probably infinite amount of counters to her climate change stance. So consequently, these people are getting these very loud voices and they're based on ignorance. And the big question is, is how can a society and how can people that need facts, confront facts, have the freedom to do so, how can they survive when the voices that are yelling and screaming the loudest are coming from ignorance? Ponder that question for a while. This is TNT Climate and Weather Watchdog meteorologist Joe Bastardi asking you to enjoy the weather. It's the only weather you got. Life doesn't always give you time to change the outcome. Pre-diabetes does. One in three adults has pre-diabetes. But with early diagnosis, pre-diabetes can be reversed. And you can change the outcome. Take the one-minute pre-diabetes risk test today. Go to doihaveprediabetes.org. Talk that matters. Germ Warfare and Jeremy Nell on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Tim, a comment that always comes up when we have this conversation is, it's not the carbs, it's refined foods. Wrong. And, I, you know, I hate to be so direct. But the problem is, whether you take carbohydrates as refined or so-called whole grains, it breaks down to sugar or glucose. And that glucose has to be assimilated with the secretion of insulin. And it raises your blood glucose. It might be slightly less, but over a period of time, it makes no difference. What one has to understand that if you like me and you are at the end stage of your diabetes, any carbohydrate is too much. You can't. So you've got to get down to these very low levels. So sure, if you have good glucose control, which remember we said that's the problem. If your glucose control is fine, you can eat refined carbohydrates. You can eat whole grains, etc. And you, you will be fine for a period, but I can't promise you for how long. But but we're talking to the majority, and the majority have compromised glucose control already by the time they're 35 or 40. That's the majority. And it's because they've had 40 years of abuse. And remember, the abuse is testing your glucose every few hours. Remember, we do a glucose tolerance test. We give a person 65 grams of glucose. That's a glucose tolerance test. Breakfast for most Americans is twice that amount. So they do a double glucose tolerance test for breakfast. 
doctors use a glucose tolerance test not to detect health, to detect disease. And you want to do that on yourself every breakfast, and then you come to tea and you have another biscuit, and then you have lunch, which is rice and potatoes, etc., or pizza. It's just another glucose tolerance test. And you've only got so many glucose tolerance tests in your body. That's probably a good way to think about it. And once you use them up, you're diabetic. So don't use them up too soon. I used them up far too soon because I didn't understand. Mm. Just for clarity also, um, and because we need to always uh, make this clear, this is not a, a meat lobby conversation. We're not promoting meat. No. We just, we're, we're, we're promoting real foods instead of processed foods. So yeah. when you go to the, to the food should stop, don't go in the mid lanes and eat all cereals and grains and the fruits. Those aren't necessarily healthy. Certainly the, the refined ultra processed foods. If it is in a packet and it's got a list of all the ingredients, you don't want to be eating that. You want to be standing or going on the sides and getting your fresh produce, which has come directly from the farm, rather than directly from the factory. That's the difference. Yeah. We want farm prepared foods, not factory prepared foods. Let me give you an example of uh, a, just an average day with me and my wife. And tell me if this is a good way to prevent diabetes and other um, health related issues. So uh, let's say three days ago, she made us breakfast and it was a poached egg with salmon and avo and uh, she did the egg uh, in butter uh, throughout the day i drank water um, ate bits and pieces of uh, biltong or as my international audience would know it as beef jerky and then in the evening uh, chicken breast with stuffed uh, uh, cream cheese and i think maybe green beans and and that was done in butter and one i think also maybe gouda or mozzarella cheese or something with that and what did you have for a sweet afterwards nothing thank you <laughs> i was just making making the point because <laughs> <laughs> you hadn't mentioned it so we had to get that out the way yeah That's, oh, and i had coffee during is, the day i had coffee with cream yeah. also yeah well, that is a very high fat, high protein, high nutrient dense diet. And that's what we should be eating. See, mm. people don't understand that three to four million years ago, either by evolution or by creation, by God's design, we started eating animals, high fat animals and high protein animals. There was no carbohydrate. So guess what? humans became very good at protecting their carbohydrate stores. And that's what we do. We protect our carbohydrate stores. And that's why we secrete so much insulin because we stock stuff it away, prevent damage and save it for when we might need it. And most importantly, when we went out and hunted those rhinoceroses and the mammoths and the elephants, and if we had to run, what we couldn't allow was our blood glucose to drop. Now, there's only five grams of glucose in the whole bloodstream. Five grams. It's nothing. If we didn't have a proper control, that blood glucose would be used up in three or four minutes. Three or four minutes, gone. And we would collapse with a low blood glucose concentration. So what did God or our evolution decide? He decided, I'm going to make this animal burn fat. 
because when it's burning fat, mm. it doesn't need the carbohydrate. And that's how we design. And it's taken us, the research team that I work with, Philip Prince in Pennsylvania, it's taken us three or four years to disprove what I've been teaching and what every exercise science in the whole world has been teaching for the last 60, 70 years. And it's completely wrong. We try to make humans carbohydrate-dependent animals, and we aren't. We are fat-dependent animals. And the scientists, the exercise scientists, got it completely wrong. And then what happens, industry comes along and says, oh, you see, this famous exercise scientist, he's the best in the world. He's the president of the American College of Sports Medicine. And I won't say any more because I was decided I better stop at that point. But he's the president of the American College of Sports. He knows best. And he's telling you to take carbohydrates. So you better take carbohydrates. And so along comes the industry and they say, oh, you see, this guy is a key opinion maker. I think we'll fund him to tell the mm. American College of Sports Medicine that he must that everyone must take lots of carbohydrate. Well, I'm glad to report that my paper, where I debated this with the key person promoting high carbs, she and I had a had a standoff through discussions in the scientific papers, and that's going to be published. In fact, in ten in about three weeks, the preprint preprint is coming out, and it's a debate between myself and Professor Louise Burke from Australia, and we both put our arguments and. It's for the public to look at them and say, okay, who's more likely to be correct on this one? And my argument is that humans can do extremely well. They do not need carbohydrates during exercise, except in one minor variation. And Louise says the opposite. She says you cannot exercise without carbohydrates. So we've got the two polar opposition, and we both present the evidence that we think is critical, and now it's for people to decide. And it, 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 you, it's not quackery. This is an argument. It's a scientific mm. argument. We, did, we, we produced our best bullets and our best armor. And let's see what the outcome is. So the moral of the story, Tim, is that diabetes loves carbohydrates. Yeah, absolutely. And again, 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 I make the point that what I've realized over the last year is that humans are designed to regulate their blood glucose. That is the primary driver of our metabolism. Everything else falls into that. And therefore, why would it be so, so very important? And the reasons are because we can't allow it to go too high because that causes damage. Remember I talked about the damage to the veins? Or we drop it low and we become we fall over dead. So we mm. have to keep it in this tight range. And that's... And that's how we evolved over millions and millions of years, eating no or very little carbohydrate. There was no need to try to bring the glucose down all the time. It wasn't there. We were eating meat and fat. We had no stress of this carbohydrate spikes all the time. And when we introduced this high-carbohydrate diets in the 1970s, 1980s, the body had suddenly was a challenge. It was a complete new challenge. How is it going to cope with this? And the answer was to secrete insulin. And unfortunately, insulin, every time you secrete it, it makes you slightly more insulin resistant, slightly more insulin resistant. Every time you eat a high-carbohydrate meal, you become slightly more insulin resistant. If you're like Tim Noakes, you go like this. You ramp up and you're very soon diabetic. 
if you're mm -hmm. other people who probably have phoned in or mentioned it and they can eat a high carb diet they they're on a different trajectory but it's going up they are getting more insulin resistant but they may well die long before it becomes apparent but for the rest of us yeah. by the time we're 40 or 50 it's very apparent that we're in so insulin resistant that we're in fact diabetic and that's that's the difference and it's it can only be induced by carbohydrate time is starting to run against us tim so i don't have too much uh, left um, in order in, in terms of you know conversation time but what impact does coffee have on your system you know i've i've never well it does it's a stimulant and it's obviously a very important brain stimulant and it definitely helps performance and exercise and so it alerts you and allows you to to cope you know i've just finished reading three marvelous biographies of three of the greatest runners of all time a guy called herb Elliott, the american uh peter snell from new zealand and Jim Ryan from from North America, and they had these three unbelievable careers. They were almost unbeaten. They were almost unbeatable. Two of them certainly. Jim Ryan had a strange career, and he had a few disappointments. But on his day, he was they were totally unbeatable. And they and the reason they were unbeatable was they didn't they refused to allow people to beat them. That was the key. And Jim Ryan was who set the world record that lasted for eight years, and he. He said it when he was 19, when he first said it. And so did Elliot. Elliot also in about 2021, 20, he set the world record. But they said that the key to their performance was having one other runner in the in the race who challenged them absolutely. That was the key. They had to be scared that that person might beat them. And then only could they release everything. So we've got this mind that holds us back. And a lot of ways that you can get your mind to overcome that. And the best is to have the best competitor in the world against you. And you're the best competitor. And that's when you get mm -hmm. world records done. And so my point is that the mind is terribly important in, in performance and keeping alert is important. And that's why caffeine has a small effect. It's not the same as running against Jim Ryan or Peter Snell. If you're the world's best, that is the ultimate test for you. And then your brain is absolutely activated. You don't need caffeine. But for most of us, when we go out for our early morning run or cycle, we need a bit of caffeine to to be a bit of a Peter Snell challenge to no, us. <laughs> but I think what I'm what I'm trying to ask is does it influence um weight, weight gain or weight loss, or is that not known? No. You know, weight loss again is where we started. It's entirely on dependent on satiation. If you take coffee and it makes you more satiated, then you're going to lose. You might well eat a little bit less, and you might potentially uh, lose weight. Let me make the point: the reason why exercise doesn't cause you to lose weight because it makes you hungry, and so you eat more calories, and you eat more calories of the type that you eat anyway. So if they stimulate your appetite, you're going to take more calories than you need. So the first thing, if you want to lose weight, is you've got to sort out your satiation, and then it's fine. Then you can go out and run. Because you're not going to get overstimulated and over ingest too many calories. That's the key. The only thing that'll make you put on weight is something that doesn't satiate you and provides you with calories. All right, Tim. Unfortunately, we are out of time. So let's quickly promote your book. Yeah, it was asked whether we'd self-promote it. No, no, we academic press published it. 
Um, the Nutrition Network is our organization that, that was behind the organization of it and funded the, the development of the project. So it's Academic Press Elsevier that you will find it on their website. It's founded on Amazon as well, Ketogenic, the Science of Therapeutic Carbohydrate Restriction in Human Health. And this, this is a textbook for doctors. If you really want to help your doctor, buy the book and give it to him or her. That's, <laughs> that's, but don't read it yourself unless you are medically trained. It's just too complex. But it's there to show you that the weight of evidence supports everything I've said today. Mm. I just want to remind listeners, Tim, that uh, my, my journey with you started, I think, in 2013, 2012, 2013, and we were sitting opposite each other in the train, just by coincidence. And uh, I, we started chatting and uh, I was telling you about my excessive acid reflux at that, at that stage. And you asked me what, what it is that I was eating for breakfast. And I said, oats. And you said, stop that right now. <laughs> and I've never eaten <laughs> oats again. <laughs> and, we, and we know um, the mechanism, you know, it produces the methane and the methane comes up at night. And mm, so you just, yeah. so this brings the acid into the stomach, sorry, into the esophagus, and that causes the problem. Okay, 30 seconds, Tim. Give me a nugget of wisdom on, on World Diabetes Day. So World Diabetes, we do not have to have diabetes. It's a completely preventable and reversible disease. It's driven by carbohydrates, which cause you to hypersecrete insulin, which makes you progressively more insulin resistant. And ultimately, if you've got the wrong genes, you'll end up with type 2 diabetes. And the best advice is when you are in the womb, you just tell your mother to stop eating carbohydrate. And when you come out of the womb, you tell her, stop feeding me carbohydrates. I don't want any of this fake milk. I'll have your breast milk, which is full of fat. Thank you very much. And then wean me onto the diet that caused me to get stuck off the medical roll. You get them on, weaned onto a high fat, low carbohydrate, nutrient dense food, as humans have always done for 3 million years. Tim Noakes, as always, thank you for joining me in the trenches. Thanks, Jim. And uh, thank you, Alex, for uh, for keeping things going smoothly as always. Uh, do send me an email, germwarfare at tntradio.live. Uh, send me feedback, questions, uh, ideas for shows, for talking points, guests, anything you want. Uh, germwarfare at tntradio.live more than happy to even get hate mail <laughs> i get very little of that which means i'm doing a terrible job if i'm not getting people angry something is wrong uh, just just on the topic quickly of low carbs i uh, have, i've had a bit of a roller coaster ride with uh, with with my health for oh i don't know over 10 years or so but i have found overwhelmingly that if I restrict my carbohydrate intake and I increase my, my saturated fat and protein intake, I am a whole lot better. I, I, I don't believe in vaccines anymore. I don't see the point. I don't see the need. I think that everything can be solved successfully with, with diet and living a good, healthy life as, as Tim likes to uh, speak about. So that's my personal journey. But I'm out of here. I'll catch you tomorrow. My name is Germ. This is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas.